0: Think Squad, what comes to your mind when I say head of the house? Even as I say those words, I know that some are going to cringe at it. It sounds very 1950s, doesn't it? But it's a concept that every Christian husband and father needs to understand and embrace in order to live out the calling that God has for his life. In the Bible, God himself is called father and Jesus is described as a husband. So today we're going to go back to the basics, back to scripture itself, to learn what these concepts mean and how you can become the kind of husband and father and be the head of your household in a way that honors God and serves your family and leads them well this year. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckes, and I am a Bible teacher and former pastor who used to defend the Christian worldview the completely wrong way until God changed my attitude and my approach. And now I'm the president of the Think Institute, and I get to help believers share their faith and defend it with confidence and to pass it on to the younger generation. I'm on this journey along with you, and I'm learning a ton as I go, and I'm sharing what I learn with you. What would it mean for you to become a godly head of your household or to grow in that area and that skill set by 2023. There are biblical principles that I've come across that have helped me to understand and really helped me out big time as I've sought to become a godly head of my own household myself. And as you grow in your role of husband and father and worldview leader in your home, these principles are going to help you out as well. Today, we're joined by Dr. Khaldun Swice. Khaldun is a good friend of mine. He's been on the show before and uh, he's come on to describe and discuss the pillars of society and the importance of having a godly brotherhood. He is a philosopher, an apologist, a college professor, and a life coach. And he helps men sort through how to become godly heads of their household. This is his thing. So he's really the perfect thinker to help us out on this journey today. So if you've ever felt like you were in over your head as the leader of your home, or you've had a desire to learn some best practices as a father, husband, head of the home, this episode is going to be for you. You're going to hear Dr. Khaldun Swice explain why as a Christian apologist, he chose to become a life coach, how to understand the role of a father in light of the fact that God himself is a father, why the role of husband and father is so misunderstood today, and what it means for a husband to be the head of the household. You're also going to learn what makes Christianity unique and uniquely suited to help men in fulfilling their manly purpose. And then Khaldun's going to give us some practical steps that we can take this year to become a more godly father. He's also going to warn us about some pitfalls to watch out along the way. Now, one of the major perks of being part of this think institute community is getting free access to our facebook group the think squad this is the community where you can discuss and learn from over 700 others who are on the exact same journey that you're on every day we're sharing unique resources and discussing fascinating questions that will help you become the worldview leader that your family and your church need i'll tell you how to join that group after the show but now let's get into it with dr caldoon swice I am here with my good friend, Kaldun Swice. And of course, as always, we want to get right into the good stuff. Kaldun, if you could get stranded on an island with C.S. Lewis or Richard Dawkins, <laughs> who would it be? <laughs> who would you choose?
1: That's a hard one. That, uh, immediately, C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Of course.
0: You I, You wouldn't go for the apologetic opportunity that that uh, Dawkins would provide?
1: <laughs> it would maybe cause uh, me to just stretch my patience more than anything else. Uh, <laughs> I Probably, think probably try to swim for shore at that
0: point. <laughs> I know yourself. that you're a fan of Lewis, and uh, I've found Lewis's thinking very insightful, and uh, much in a similar way, I've found your thinking to be very insightful and informative, very helpful, and uh, especially the stuff, Kaldun, that you have to say about manhood, Masculinity, fatherhood. And, you know, I find you to be somewhat of a paradox here because, on the one hand, you're this Christian apologist. Okay. You've written three books on apologetics. You've got Christian Apologetics, an Anthology of Primary Sources in 2012, Debating Christian Theism, which you wrote with J.P. Moreland in 2013, and then Killing God, which is an analysis of new atheists like. Richard Dawkins and others, you wrote that in 2016, but then you're also this life coach and you counsel men on how to live a more godly and productive life. So how did you decide to go that route? Why did you decide to become a life coach and how does that tie in with your other work?
1: Yeah, it it is fascinating and journey. What ends up happening is I was just discussing with men the reasons for the hope that they have within them. And I found out that the reasons that they actually give are not actually the reasons they don't believe. There's something else. It's like there's a problem behind the problem. That's the problem. And the problem generally I found with men in general is a lack of productivity, lack of passion, lack of profit in their own lives. I began to unpack that and try to help them find that peace and that productivity to be the leaders and providers they can be for their families. And that naturally just began to emerge. Then we were able to deal with the apologetic objections and the questions and theological nuances that needed to be addressed. As Einstein said, it's hard to solve a problem with the same mindset that created it. So so we need to shift the mindset. And that required a a type of uh, mentoring or coaching or leadership in that regard. And that led me to that. And I found it to be absolutely fascinating and rewarding. I've seen guys' lives absolutely change remarkably after working with people and addressing and unpacking subliminal and issues that are just not addressed
0: at a normal level. One of the most important doctrines that we hold to is that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first person of the Trinity, the Father, we call him Father. We don't call him Mother, <laughs> which, you know, nowadays we, we would say, you know, that goes without saying, but right. why is that? Why mm. is God called Father? not mother why do you think that is
1: it it is fascinating isn't it modern culture will tell us modern secular culture will tell us there's no distinct difference between the masculine and the feminine they're both uh, intertwined and sociologically manipulated and created by cultures uh, which is nothing further than the truth than that that's just complete not only false it's illogical and and it's empirically problematic at the highest level god is uh the patriarch or the patros or the great father the, the creator the sustainer the maker and and even in mythology uh, you have gia which is another form of the name of the mother earth is the one who receives where the father is the one who gives who puts the seed in the ground not only sexually but even as a gardener and that father is the one who creates who brings in the life blood who brings in the whole the source of everything else and the mother receives that and gives birth to it and provides a nurturing environment for it as you can see that between the god of the father god the father and mother earth putting it all together as a mythological perspective but god being known as the one who actually initiates everything is the petros the one okay, who is the, the leader so that necessitates that he would be father the, not the mother the mother is a receiver not the giver not the creator the starter
0: Okay, but yeah. but you're not saying that we get our our concept of God the Father from mythology, correct? Or, <laughs> I, I know.
1: Of course, the mythology gets this concept of that from theology, from the, the, the natural order of the world, and that just grows out of that from all the stories and legends and history.
0: Okay, so they're taking something that's inherent in the world. They're taking some truth that's out there, almost like Romans one says God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. They're taking that and they're doing something with it. There's still a there's still an echo of the original truth in it, it sounds like. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, definitely. This is something I've been wondering about and really wanted to ask you. So God describes himself as a father. Are we there for, to understand God based on our conception of what a father is, for example, based on our earthly father. And so we project that up and we say, oh, God must be like this, or does it flow the other way around? Are we supposed to get our picture of what it means to be a father from God, like in Holy scripture, and then say, now we take that and we extrapolate, this is what it means to be a father. So is our definition flowing upward or downward, if that makes sense? I think experientially speaking, it
1: flows from our experience of the world around us and the fathers that we know of, the providers, and protectors of our world. And from there, we extrapolate what we think of God, although that seems to be a natural perspective. The correct or ontological is supposed to be done is the other way around. God created the world and his being, his likeness, his entity as a being, as a father, as a creator, as a sustainer of the universe. From that, we begin to grow and learn what it means to be a father. Rather, it's very dangerous to flip that paradigm upside down. Okay. Uh, very dangerous.
0: Okay. So I hear you saying then that our understanding ought to begin with God and as he reveals himself as father, and then that becomes our paradigm for what it means to be a father. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think so. I think we learn from the, uh,
1: the archetype of God or the archetype of a man from the very essence and nature of God himself. Okay. The the highest level of what that means comes from that. Yeah. I've, I've known many good men in my life who I can use as examples of a leader or as a provider. For example, my own father would work sometimes 16 to 20 hour days And that was a good example to me of what it means to be a a provider in my own family. But that's not the highest archetype because some people have a father who did the exact opposite, who was not there, who was absent, who was abusive, who was hurtful, who was destructive. And that would be detrimental to build your paradigm of what it means to be a father from the men in your life because we just fail. We fail. We need a figure, a father figure to look up to. And God is that. God provides that. God sustains that. God inspires that.
0: I wanted to ask you about this too. So God is the father. And I like, I I love the way you put that. There's a sufficiency to God as father. What would you say to someone who says, well, if God is only father, then we're lacking a mother. We're somehow now lacking the motherly figure.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating. That's why scripture has, uh, uh, Christ being the the masculine and the church being the feminine, the bride of Christ. God actually creates the feminine in the, the church or the community of the believers of people around him. Then we or creates the earth that he actually impregnates with life and life begins to grow from the earth itself. So we are like the feminine and God is the masculine and he creates that together, and puts it together. I understand the the uh the objection and it's a fascinating one to consider um is God a um, uh, Completely, utterly masculine. I, I don't think so, because if you read Genesis uh, chapter 1, God says he created man in his image, and in the image of God, he created them, and male and female, he created them. Right. So within the very Godhead, within the very ma- essence of God, there is a masculine, the divine masculine, divine feminine kind of work together there in some kind of mysterious fashion. And I just don't understand or grasp it. God's primarily the patriarch, pri- primarily the patros, the, the warrior, the protector, the king. I think that's the case, but every now and then, God is also referred to as um, like a mother would want to gather her her, her children together under her wings. Jesus said, right. "I would rather I wanted to gather the children of Israel under mine, but they refused." Yeah. He used that imagery of a mother hen to do that. Um, even Hagar refers to God as a comforter um, in a feminine sense uh, when she was struggling in the in the in the desert with her son.
0: Yeah. So, in other words, God is. God as father is totally sufficient to be all the divine parent we need. We don't need to look for some mother. Uh, God is fully sufficient in and of himself. Of course. Yeah. I think it's incredibly relevant now, Khaldun, because we do live in a, a time when fatherhood, the role of a father, the role of a husband is so misunderstood. In 2017, you wrote an article for Great Command Ministries, Four Unexpected Ways to Address a Suffering Marriage, Help for mm. a Husband Who is Just Not Getting It. And in that article, you write that husbands are to be the head of our home and that the husband's divine calling is to take primary responsibility for Christlike leadership, protection, and provision. You point out that this is a politically incorrect belief. Why is this so politically incorrect today? And how is that role misunderstood by our culture?
1: I think that modern feminism would, with its uh, impetus to try to equalize the role in the playing field between men and women in the, in the business and political environment have inadvertently created a system that denies the very beauty and the wonder of the distinctions between the masculine and the feminine. And as a result, uh, the men are suffering across the board all over the world for this. There's a wonderful book that just came out. Actually, I have it right here. The Boy Crisis by Warren Farrell, where he argues very well and very articulately that men are suffering in, in trying to live up to the role God has given them because women are now stepping up to the plate and becoming their own providers. For example, me as a professor at the city colleges, uh, about 60 to 80 percent of my students on a yearly basis are women. Um, they are far exceeding men in graduate fields such as medicine and in law. And, and men are slowly starting to step back as they, their primary role as, as a provider and protector is being now, I don't want to say usurped, but being equalized across the board with women, being able to take care of themselves and more, earn just as much, if not more, than men. So those times and those kinds of situations that are happening across the board, and the fact that we're trying to eliminate discrimination of sexism and things of that nature, there's a pushback in culture against that. And it's understandable. Given the abuses that the Me Too movement has capitalized on and, and brought to bear on the uh, the men who are in charge and certainly so are leaders and are protectors, so sometimes abusing their roles. And that has detrimental effects upon men, um, and women, and children.
0: So, as a result of that, society doing what it does pushes back and swings the pendulum back in the opposite direction. And we hear things like uh, a child can be just fine with no dad and, and having two moms or a mom can be a dad a woman can be a dad so okay so the pendulum is very
1: even though a more recent supreme court justice so she wouldn't even define what a
0: woman was it wouldn't even well she's not a biologist calvin you can't (laughs)
1: expect of course not (laughs) is it raining outside i don't know i'm not a meteorologist i can't tell you (laughs) (laughs) really Uh, uh, she's walking the fine line of course between trying to honor those who are struggling with their sexuality but at the same time, denying the very biological essence of what it means to be a human being, which is masculine and feminine. There is no other option.
0: Right. Well, then a, uh, a few days later, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, comes out and says, you know, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a, seen as a sacred right. And uh, all, all of the fair-minded uh, thinking people go, wait a minute. Are we now we're able to define what a man is and what a woman is? Are we saying that a man can't get pregnant? OK, because that's what we've been saying all along, sir but yeah um, this,
1: this is very sad
0: we want a supreme court justice who's a
1: woman but you don't even know what a woman is how you what's this big deal of trying to put a supreme court justice who's a woman when you can't even define what a woman is you want to equalize the playing field between men and women but you want to eliminate the difference between men and women it doesn't work illogically it implodes on each other
0: yeah, yes that's right well that all all would be autonomous human reasoning ultimately becomes incoherent With respect to itself. There's, there's always, and sometimes I think God just to make things really obvious for us. And sometimes, I mean, you know, he's got to be laughing because he'll allow situations like this where we're celebrating the, the, well, some are celebrating the um, appointment of a female Supreme Court justice. Who right. can't define what a, what a woman is, and I just view that as one of those delightful ironies that God allows, sort of in real time. You know, it's sort of that Psalm two situation where God sits in heaven and just laughs. He holds <laughs> them in derision. He says, "Really, you know?" The, well, unfortunately, how's that they, going they, for you?
1: Right, 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 and unfortunately, the next culture ends up um, suffering because when you can't define what something is, you can't possibly solve the problem of it. I found that when I work with men in coaching as well, when you have a problem and you can't clearly articulate exactly what the problem is, mm. there's no way you can solve the problem. So the the problems of um, the, the boyhood crisis, the manhood crisis, the marriage crisis—how uh, can we define those if we deny the very essence of what it means to be a man or a woman? I I have something here for you that I found to be fascinating. Peter Kreeft in his book on um, everything you wanted to know about heaven but were afraid to ask. Peter Kreeft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College, and he wrote the following, which I want to share with you, I found fascinating, Joel. The words masculinity and femininity, meaning something more than merely biological maleness and femaleness, femaleness, have been reduced from archetypes to stereotypes. Traditional expectations that men be men and women be women are confused because we no longer know what to expect men and women to be. Yet, though confused... The expectation remains. Our hearts desire, even while our minds reject the old stereotypes. The reason the old stereotypes were closer to our innate sexual instincts are because they are archetypes. We have sexist hearts, even while we have unisex heads. Evidence for this claim? Sure. More men are attracted to the old stereotypes than the new ones. Romeo still wants to marry Juliet.
0: Hmm. Okay, so what's he saying about that? What's his evaluation? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing?
1: No matter how much we keep trying to deny the fact, girls still go after the quarterback. Young ladies try to get the quarterback as as, as the prime man there. Men still go after the princess who's the most feminine, most beautiful girl in the crowd. Why is that? Because there's a beauty and there's a wonder in the old stereotypes that are connected to the archetype that God actually created men to be. Yes, which is the provider and protector woman to be a nurturer and, and somebody who exemplifies beauty in herself and in the creation around her. You push that to the other extreme. The man who's not the provider, not the protector, a weak man, a man who's not being able to stand up for himself or his culture mm-hmm. does not attract women. He, he, he repels them. Right. Not only them, he repels men around him as well. The protection and the provision of the masculine allows the feminine to blossom more. A woman can be more of herself Mm -hmm. when she has somebody around her who provides that protection from the the world and the shadows and the devils and the dragons, if I may put it that way. I have something fascinating here I want to share. And I know your listeners can't see this, but I have a picture here of the great St. George. It's an old icon.
0: Oh, yeah. St. George and the dragon.
1: Yeah, St. George, the dragon slayer. Love it. Yeah, it's a fascinating picture. And if anybody can just pull this up, if you can, I know you guys are listening if you have some time. But Saint. George is basically the um, uh, one of the saints of the, uh, the, the Christian faith mm-hmm. And he was under uh, the Emperor Diocletian during the Roman Empire period. and he his fascist, he stood up for himself and would not bow his knee to the dictates of Diocletian and the emperors and would not denounce his faith. Um, his story grew into legend, but basically the legend is that he slew a dragon which symbolizes the devil. Right. And it's fascinating. If you see the iconic picture of that, it's the St. Joy is riding a horse, a majestic steed, a white steed, a powerful figure. And he's, um, and he's dressed in armor Mm -hmm. and the dragon is below him cowering. And behind the dragon is this massive cave. uh, And behind him is this princess that stands in the background watching him. And a man who goes into the cave, into the darkness to fight the dragons of the world is attractive to the princess because she's waiting for a man who's willing to fight the dragons in his world and yeah. in her own. And that attracts her. Cause he provides protection. He provides um, a security for her and the culture around him. And of course he gets the gold and the woman, if he beats a dragon.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, that's right. That's right. right.
1: And the other men look up to that. We look up to the warrior. We look up to the hero. We look up to the one. This is fascinating, Joel. I saw a picture on Instagram a number of years ago. and it's, I think it's become one of the most famous, um, uh, most shared images in, in history on, on, on social media. You can look it up. It's a picture of a six-year-old boy holding his little sister. And what oh. made that very famous is he got a large gash in his face. Hmm. What ended up happening is her, his sister was attacked by this dog. And oh, he yeah. jumped in to stop it. Yeah. And he was, he was torn up over it.
0: Yeah, the, I, I remember seeing that.
1: And his father asked him as he came out of surgery, why did you do it? He said to his father, if somebody had to die, it had to be me.
0: Wow, that's right. Yes, I remember that.
1: It is fascinating. The characters from the Avengers came to his uh, – honored him, and they sent him the sword – not the sword, but the shield from Captain America. He was sent for him. Amazing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he was honored on major platforms all over the world. And he is an example. That little boy, that six-year-old boy, I think he was six. His sister was four. Uh, mm-hmm. of an example of a provider and a protector for his little sister. And all of us wow. look up to that and he didn't even realize he's probably doing that. Of course he's little.
0: No, sure. He right. needs
1: to be a father. Take I love the it. arrows of the devil.
0: And so much of this is innate. We as men are naturally attracted to the femininity of women. They are naturally attracted to their counterpart, the masculinity in us, we're not meant to compete with one another. We're meant to complement one another, and so some of so much of this is innate, but it also requires the engagement of the mind. It it requires us to think reasonably, logically, and uh, you know, as the name of your organization says, to be logically faithful about this. Let's go there. Absolutely. What does it mean for the husband to be the head of the household, and how does that role deepen or expand when a husband becomes a father?
1: Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 15. I found it helpful. It's a powerful verse. Actually, a couple verses. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong and do everything in love. And if we were to exegete that, I think that unpacks some of the questions you asked in, in a profound way. A true man is vigilant against danger. He stands his guard meaning he is there, he's watching to see what the world is that's coming into home. The the, the negative images that are coming in through social media, the, um, the audio images that are coming in through music, the uh, influences that are coming through the kids in the community in his area for his children. He's standing guard to watch what's actually there. He's not, uh, people tell us not to coddle our children, not to protect our children, not to sh- shelter our children. We should shelter our children. That's our goal, especially when they're little, because a child's mind is like clay. It's moldable. As right. they get older, of course, it starts to solidify, and then they can make their own choices. But as they're little, they're very impressionable. Yeah, It's important for us to stand guard and to protect and stand firm in our faith. I think that verse really unpacks that. Um, and and there's so much more to it. There's be, be men of courage is what it says in First Corinthians. What does it mean to be courageous? It doesn't mean living without fear. All of us have fear. It means despite the fear, I will stand up for my family. I will take the bullet. I will go down to see who broke the window in the middle of the night. I won't say it's your term, honey. Of course, we're <laughs> always equal. It. Right. I was debating this wonderful pastor. For my he made an equality between women, and I agree at some level there is an equality there. However, I asked him, point blank, breaking a window in the middle of the night, you hear that sound. Do you tell her it's turned to go? He said, no, I'll take the bullet first. I said, of course you would. Why is that? Yeah. He was quiet. Yeah. you know There um, is a reason for that. It's because our bodies, our physiological bodies are made stronger for a reason.
0: <laughs> it's to take the hit first. You know, what I like about that passage that you just mentioned, I'm really glad you mentioned that because – so I'm reading in the NASB and it, it says – be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men be strong to understand what that means is you have to know what it means to be a man it's implied that to be a man in the fullest sense of that concept is to be courageous. it is to go downstairs when the uh, the window breaks. Now when the baby's crying uh, that's a different story <laughs> but but when there's a uh, you know when there's a thump when there's potential danger, it's instinctual. But even if it wasn't instinctual, we still have God's word that tells us to be a man is to be courageous. It is to stand firm. And so it's interesting because Paul's talking to men and women, but he uses manliness as the paradigm because everyone knows what that means. If someone says, man up, if someone says, act like a man, even if you're talking to a woman, you're calling out certain character attributes because it's not like women can never be courageous. It's just there are certain attributes that are more uh, stereotypically or even uh, archetypically associated with men. And so I love that. I love this passage for that exact Mm -hmm. reason.
1: Yeah, I love how you put that. And isn't it fascinating, Joel, that when I am in trouble, when I hear danger and there's there's something coming that's going to threaten my life, you know, my adrenaline will go up, I'll sense a sense of fear, but yeah. at the same time, I want to face it. But when my children and my family are in danger, fear out the door. Sure. No, I'm going right in. And as men, we're called to go into the fire, go to the caves, go into the forest. That's why we're called We're called to be courageous. Uh, now, women can do that too, of course, especially single moms, and my hat goes off to them who have to stop and take the role of the man and the woman in their relationship um, due to various factors. And that makes sense. But in an ideal perspective, the man is the one, because of the physiological aspect of him being more resilient physically and psychologically, he's able to stand up against danger idealistically better. Um, And that's why God calls him to do that.
0: Well, it's even interesting just how you just put it is very revealing, Keldum, because you said a single mom has to take on the role of, a mother and a father. That implies, and even overtly states, there is a role for a mother and a father. And so a single mom has to do double duty. She's got to take on some of those attributes that a a dad would normally take on. Khaldun, how did you come to this understanding of what it means to be a dad?
1: I've gone through my own experience of being a father myself, uh, loving my children more than anything I could imagine. being there for them, realizing how much I failed to to be who I could be for them, has just reminded me of the preciousness and the volatility of the growth process of a child, and and they they long for even on a subliminal level for somebody to be there for them to be a pillar in their lives, and that hit me as a as a deep level. Um, one day I was uh, this is a couple few years ago I was putting my daughter to bed, and I kissed her and put her to bed, shut the light off. And I was walking out. She yells out, daddy. I said, yes. She said, I love you. When you hear that, she was about four, three and a half, four years old at the time. My heart melted, And at that point, I felt a sense of the transcendent into the room. I felt I was in the presence of divinity that God had reminded me the beauty and the wonder of being a father and how protecting her became everything for me. And providing that, that nourishing environment meant so much more to me. Of course, many different factors came into play that, that altered some of that in my own life. But just the presence of the children in life reminded me of the importance of it and the beauty of it and the wonder of it.
0: Man, that's began
1: As I began to study this more and more, as I began to deal with men on an individual level, I just saw so many men dropping the ball. Hmm. And as they began to drop the ball, I began to research what's happening here. And I realize it's happening on a grand scale in Europe, U.S., all over the world. As, uh, as modern feminism begins to grow, um, the sense of manliness or provision and protector and provider has diminished among men. And I begin to study that at an academic level. It's, it's fascinating and sad at the same time.
0: Do you think that there's something inherent in the Christian worldview that makes it unique? That other worldviews lack in what they call men to be or in what they equip them with?
1: The highest expression of what it means to be a man is is embodied in the very person and nature and being of Jesus of Nazareth himself, who know, although he saw the cross and the pain and the suffering set before him, yet for the joy prepared for him, he went through that. He picked up his cross. He bore his suffering on our behalf and became that archetype man who, who was able to take upon himself the sin of the world or the pain of the world, and carry it with dignity, without complaining,
0: right. and
1: face the fire, face the devil, and, and, and pursue through that. And that's an example for us as men, take up our own cross and our own sense of responsibility. <laughs> Jordan Peterson uh, writes about that very well. I think Jesus, as the most humble, most meek, most wonderful human being who ever walked the earth, still suffered with Mm. dignity, and took on that pain as the archetype of God himself on earth, as the actual incarnation of God on earth, is there's nothing else greater, more beautiful, and more
0: magnificent, and more masculine than that. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of what's going on when the husband gets out of bed to go investigate the crash downstairs. He says, there's danger. It's going to get the ones that I love. And the great paradox of it is that in doing so, he himself is killed, he himself is destroyed by the dragon, but it's in the very act of giving up his life that the dragon is destroyed. And then Jesus comes back to life, and the, the dragon, the sin, that the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and its control over us, stays dead. And but-
1: the very prophecy in Genesis 3 says that Jesus himself crushed the head of that serpent. That very serpent went up to Eve, the very precious bride of Adam, and tempted her, and Adam was passive. He was quiet next to her. He was not the one that was deceived, Paul tells us. She was deceived. He knew what was up. He knew this was a dragon that entered into his home, went up to his wife and began to deceive her, and he just stood there quietly. He was passive. The text says who was with her when she gave him to eat. Now Jesus, in contrast, rebukes the devil. The devil tempts him, takes him to the top of the temple, and begins to tempt him. And Jesus himself rebukes him with scripture. And at the end, Cast him away. He said, get get away from me, Satan. He is the the second Adam who confronts the devil. Yeah. Not the first Adam who was passively standing by while the devil came into his home.
0: He gets right what Adam got wrong.
1: Exactly. And we need to be like the second Adam to stand against the devils in our lives, whether they're coming in through social media, whether through education, whether through government, through other places. We need to stand up against these dragons and, and be protectors and providers for our family. And... Prophets speaking God's truth, priests mm. interceding for our family above us, patriots protecting them in their community. We need to be that those kinds of men. And to be that kind of man requires, hear me clearly in this, this is so critical. You need to have a community of men around you who have that, who exemplify that, who can encourage you when you're down, uplift you when you're broken, and, in, and cheer you on when you're doing well.
0: So what are some practical ways to... Take this theory and to say, what is something I can do today? You
1: cannot be a good father unless you are first a good man. You cannot be a good man until you first get right with your relationship with God. Once you know who God is and who you are in relation to God, I think that can build within us a resolution to be able to stand up and be that example to others. Um, a lot of times we think that I need to set the example for our I need to set the culture. The problem is um, just be, be who God made you to be. Be the provider and protector. Th- don't worry about what others think and what others are saying around you um, that are, that's detrimental. I think um, one of the most practical examples in my own life is uh, my own father who took me walking, uh, looking for jobs when he came from Jordan. He couldn't find one. He was looking for places to hire him from gas stations to butcher shops to um, construction. And one day he decided just to take me with him. And I remember holding his finger, walking with him. And the first place he walked in was a grocery store. And he asked about the job. And they looked at me, they looked at him, uh, they talked to him, and he got the job. He became a, a manager of that company later. And looking back, my father, told me if I'd been with him that day, I wouldn't have given him the job. What he had exemplified at that point was being the provider of the little kid who was with him, impacting him as he walked with him, he was joking and talking with him. And they saw that, they saw that joy between me and him, and that was attractive. That was um, something you couldn't ignore. And when you see a father being there for his children, wanting to provide more for him, that, that gives people... Um, an inspiration to be like that of themselves. Um, your time, your devotional time with God in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, there's an old proverb that says, what a cup is filled with will spill out when it's tilted. So what are you filling your cup with, your spiritual cup with in the morning? What's What's built up in that throughout the day, throughout the years? It's going to come out when somebody cuts you off, when your wife does something again for the 40th yeah. time. When the kids start pushing your nerves, it's going to explode because your cup is full of these unresolved issues that you haven't dealt with in your own time, your devotion time, your time with other men, your time in your community. I think those alone times with God that Jesus himself gave us as, as an example, when He left his ministry, left his friends and spent that time alone to really come to terms with what is really bothering him. Hmm and then deal with it. At that point, you can become more of the man that your children need, your culture starves for.
0: What are some pitfalls we need to watch out for along the way? There
1: are archetypes of what it means to be a man, such as being a warrior and a king. But even a warrior and a king can become abusive and a tyrant. When you provide a place of protection for your kids, be careful not to push that too far. When you push it too far, you provide micromanaging situation where you're watching everything and being there and and protecting them so much that they're unable to scratch their legs or get hurt as a normal child needs to in order to grow. Mm. Um, And when you provide that sense of protection for your wife but you're overly protective, overly cautious, that's dangerous. I think um, we need to avoid extremes as uh, Solomon tells us. And those are red flags and I think the way you balance that out is you spend time with people who are balanced, who have a sense of um, uh, grace and peace, strength and humility, power and humbleness. Um, how do you balance that? You, you see it. You see it in people around you who are too extreme, too much one way or another. And that can happen with any of us. So there is a balance in our lives, and that balance is, is done with wisdom, with grace, mm-hmm. and with people around you who do it well. So Jay Warner Wallace was a cold case detective out of California. And for years, he served as uh, finding, for example, bodies that were just, they called the police about it. His job was to find who did it and why it was done. Mm. Cold case, because we don't know who's, who the perpetrator is. And he told me something interesting. He said, there are three main reasons people kill, sex, money, and power. It's fascinating to me as I'm reading scripture and reading through history, that these are the three main things that are dangerous for men as well. How so? Power, power, sex, and money. They're temptations. They're powerful temptations. And those are red flags in our own lives. If we see us leaning toward one or the other, we may need to reach out for others who are doing them well uh, so we can balance our lives. So you had a problem with Lucas and he he was on death's door for a long time in the hospital. How did you... Be that provider and protector for your own family during that period of time, which must have been one of the most darkest period of your life.
0: Well, the Lord can judge how well I did during that period. Um, as the Apostle Paul says, "I'm not. I, I don't judge myself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I did, but I will say the Lord sustained me, and it, it truly. I know this is going to sound cliche, Calvin It is all God's grace. I'm telling you, from the moment we found out. Now, this is going back to when Lucas was just 10 months old and when he came down, uh, he was diagnosed with leukemia. The moment I got that phone call, it it felt as though the floor was sliding out from underneath me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm telling you, very quickly thereafter, as I turned to the Lord in prayer, not perfectly, but by his grace, pretty continuously. And then as Elisa and I were praying together and seeking the prayer of many others, and we had thousands of people praying for Lucas over about a four or five year period, it was like that floor came back up and it was like, okay, I'm not going to sink into despair or uh, abject um, emotional and spiritual ruin here because God is literally holding me up, spiritually speaking. I could feel it. It was very tangible. And there were times when I broke down. There were times when I had no clue how I was going to go on and just begging God to take me and switch places with my son. Nothing overly altruistic, just not wanting my son, my son to suffer. And it was just the Lord who sustained me, man. That being said, Mm -hmm. we had a lot of help. I mean, for me personally, I had Elisa who was just an absolute rock trusting in the Lord. I know for her, there was a passage of Scripture, James chapter one verse two, that talk about how we find joy in our suffering. God put that passage on her heart and it stuck, man, like super glue. And she was always remind, constantly reminding me of that. We had thousands of people praying for Lucas. A lot of that came through my wife's blogging and writing on Facebook. People at our church were praying uh, multiple actually uh, we actually changed churches twice throughout that whole saga. And then when Lucas was in the hospital, I was very blessed to have people I could text for prayer. And so it, it, there's nothing ambitious on my part, just a lot of prayer and trying to be in God's word. And I'll tell you, man, it's it's very convicting when I think about how close I was to the Lord during that period of time and how easy it is for me now to slip into prayerlessness and wow. to go through Thank prayer you. droughts. Whereas when he was sick, like really sick, Man, I didn't have to try to be prayerful. It's all I its all I could be was prayerful. And I, I love what you said earlier. You'll never be a good father until you're a good man. You'll never be able to be a good man until you get right with God.
1: Absolutely, brother. And if I can just unpack that a little bit. Unless we are right with the God above us, we cannot be right with the man within us. So we can impact the men around us.
0: Dr. Swice, thank you as always for your insights. It's an honor, Joel. It's an honor. So now you know, Khaldun became a life coach because his conversations with men about their theological challenges and questions actually connected to deeper heart issues, and he wanted to help them find peace, productivity, profit in their lives through a more purposeful mindset. You heard how our definition of fatherhood should flow down from God's role as father, not the other way around. And we discussed how the role of a father and husband is so misunderstood due to modern feminism's push for equality, which ends up blurring the lines between male and female because they're not pursuing it through a biblical worldview. Khaldun explained how you can't be a good father until you are a good man, and how the values of being a provider and a protector are so vital to both. We learned what makes Christianity so uniquely suited to help men with fulfilling their manly purpose, and that is that Jesus Christ himself is the ultimate archetypal man. In him, we find the pattern and power to be priests, patriots, protectors in our families and in our local areas. For practical steps, it all starts with knowing God, taking time to get away during your morning devotionals, taking that time seriously. And then it can be something as simple as committing to providing for your family today and choosing to spend more time with your kids. Think about Khaldun's dad bringing him along on his job hunt. And Khaldun also warned us about the pitfalls of becoming a tyrant, a micromanager, or overly protective, and how balancing strength and humility can help with that. So if you're listening to this and you want to engage more with Khaldun's thinking and his work, or you think, you know what, I could use some help with this, some personal coaching, here's what I want you to do. Go onto LinkedIn and look up Khaldun Swice, K H A L D O U N S. W E I S reach out to him on LinkedIn. I know his website's down for maintenance right now, but if you're listening to this episode later, his website is logicallyfaithful.com. Check it out. Get in touch with Caldun Swice. So now do you want to learn more about what it looks like to be a godly man and your family's worldview leader? As we approach 2023, this is the time to join the think squad group. And yes, Dr. Caldun Swice is a member of that group. All you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D. Answer the three short membership questions. That is all that it takes. I think it's three. It might be four. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thank you to Dr. Kaldun Swice for joining me today. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message and we are based by God's grace.